following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. my pleasure to discuss with you today the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, which we've been exploring in great detail. This scripture in itself is a collection of sayings from the Gnostic Jesus, or to use the, his name from Greek, according to an ancient scripture, the Pisces Sophia Unveiled. Abramento, a sacred name of this personage who came 2,000 years ago to demonstrate with his example a psychological teaching, a practical teaching, a teaching about how to fully develop our potential, what we can become as a human being, a perfect being. All religions teach that the human being as we are now is a seed. We have the potential to become something more, evidenced by all the traditions of antiquity with Buddhas, saints, prophets, angels, masters, gurus. These are people who were once like us, filled with suffering, Problems, difficulties, challenges, fears, and perhaps confusion. Perhaps a state of uncertainty about who we are, where we're going, why we are here, what are we meant for? This scripture is very deep and teaches many profound things about the nature of our full potential. So we've been exploring this text and discussing this experiential root knowledge of how to know the divine for ourselves through experience, not as a matter of belief, of theory, of dogma. We know from our teenage years that we were a seed in potential 
Growing up, we were learning to discover what we can become as an adult, preparing through our education, our family life, getting prepared for the world. But while we are adults, sadly, when approaching institutions, when approaching our culture, we find that we lack answers or lack solutions to how to change fundamentally, how to transform our mind from what it is to what it could become. And in this way, when entering genuine spirituality, experiential spirituality, we discover our capacities for great resilience, patience, fortitude, compassion. And in that way, we learn to be a vehicle of the divine so that other people can benefit from us. This is why it was stated in the 20th verse of the Gospel of Thomas. The student said to Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name for Jesus, meaning Savior, Tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like. He said to them, It is like a mustard seed, the tiniest of seeds. But when it falls on prepared soil, it produces a great plant and becomes a shelter for the birds of heaven. We've been explaining that heaven is a state of being. It's a quality of mind, a way of life. Not merely just a place in dimensionality, but it is the quality of our moment-to-moment -moment experience. Do we know states of patience and fortitude, of compassion, of love, or are we afflicted? Are we in pro with problems? We have to remember that while we are a seed with the potential to become more, that potential can be lost. This is evidenced by nature. And also, if we ex examine our current society and the world as it is now, we find that things are falling apart. We see that humanity with its wars, its violence, its great affliction is in chaos. And that the potential to become a pillar for humanity, to be a support for others, to be a support for our communities and for our families, we find that that is often becoming corroded, weakened, shattered, decayed. Like with emotions of anger, of resentment, of bitterness, these qualities of mind impede the full development of our spiritual potential. The ability to become someone perfect. Not merely someone who does not take action, who doesn't strive for the betterment of others, but with patience endures the worst ordeals of life 
in order to give back with love, with endurance. This seed can be lost. It can be suffocated. More, or it can be nourished. It can be fed. It can be developed. It can be mastered. But for that, we need to know how. We need to know how to feed that inquietude of the soul that longs to know more, to know a purpose in life, to know why we are here as individuals, where we're at and in our circumstances. It is in this way that by feeding that longing of the heart and by following our intuition, the voice of conscience is how we begin to see that seed blossom so that it could become a full tree, a tree of life. In the Gospel of Thomas, it states that it is a rare thing. It is not guaranteed that all beings on this planet will become perfect. Masters, saints, angels, Buddhas, whatever name we want to give to that potential that's actualized. This is why it states in the Gospel of Thomas, Yeshua said, I shall choose you as one from a thousand and as two from ten thousand, and they will stand as a single one. While it is rare to become perfect and fully in command of oneself, it is possible if that is what we really want. If we really want to end suffering, it can be done. To stand as a single one, meaning we are integrated psychologically. We're no longer dispersed among many psychological states like fear, resentment, anger, lust, desire, pain, and other states of mind that are problematic. It means to be unified, to be in command of oneself, to dictate by will one's life. Not out of a state of tyranny, but from a state of understanding. So that everybody benefits. This verse from the Gospel of Thomas, like many others, often correlates with the canonical Gospels or the accepted canon. We find this verse given in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 13, which corroborates the Gospel of Thomas. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Examine a tree in nature. A tree can give off many seeds, millions, but how many of them become a tree, perfected, developed? It's rare. It's a law of nature. And it's not pleasant to recognize this fact spiritually from experience. 
that that potential does not have to become actualized. It can just go to the wayside. It doesn't have to be realized in the sense that it's not guaranteed. However, when we are drawn to a spiritual institution or a way of thought or a movement or a scripture, because we feel that yearning in the heart to really want to know for ourselves the truth, the truth of the divine, and moreover, to become perfect, to become a divine being. That is the way to real life where there is no suffering, no more pain. But the way to get there is obviously challenging because there are many obstacles. We'll talk about a few of them in relation to some of the ancient schools of the mysteries, as well as the sciences that really make up Gnosticism. So before we talk about three Gnostic sciences that teach how to develop our potential, we can look at some of the cultural and historical influences that shaped the Gnostic tradition itself. We find that Gnosticism as a underground movement or a mystery school was founded upon three cultures, Egypt, Greece, and mystical Judaism, Israel, or the Middle East, Jerusalem. There's a writer by the name of Dion Fortune. She wrote a book called The Mystical Kabbalah, where she explains how original Christianity was influenced by these cultures. She states, Christianity had its esotericism in the gnosis, the knowledge, the experiential realization of the divine, which owed much to both Greek and Egyptian thought. In the system of Pythagoras, we see an adaptation of the Kabbalistic principles to Greek mysticism. Kabbalah, as the Jewish mystical tradition, as we see in this image of the tree of life, is the wisdom or knowledge of the universe and the human being. We also see in our wall here the same graphic. It's a map of states of consciousness, states of being. Ten spheres, ten levels of consciousness, which we can develop and experience and master in ourselves when we take the seed and perfect it into this image, a fully realized being. We'll talk more about that in detail. But Jewish mysticism shaped the Gnostics. In the first century, especially, we find that the early Gnostic scriptures talk a lot in the symbolic language of mystical Judaism. But likewise, there is Egyptian mythology as well as Egyptian religiosity within those scriptures. And Kabbalah, united with the Egyptian rituals of the ancients, tied in with Greek philosophy, helped to shape a lot of the essential tenets of these scriptures. So if you know some basic background about these cultures and the way that they taught their mythologies, you will have a better sense of what the original Gnostic scriptures were teaching because they all were an amalgamation or they amalgamated into a movement in itself, which is the Gnostics. 
from the Gnostic tradition. So the three sciences we use to develop our full potential. Kabbalah, the tree of life. Alchemy, the tree of knowledge of good and evil from the Bible. And then psychology, which is Greek. Kabbalah is Hebrew, as we see with these letters. Kabel in Hebrew means to receive. It is knowledge, sometimes referred to as tradition, that we receive from a lineage, whether from master to disciple in a successive chain of transmission. However, Kabbalah, in its objective sense, in the Hebrew term, refers to knowledge we receive from our consciousness, from experience. It is mystical experience, mystical states, such as you're meditating, you fall asleep, you awaken consciousness within a, within a dream. You're in the dream world, but not asleep, aware, awakened. And then you can literally converse in that state of being, that dimensionality, in order to receive wisdom from your inner divine being, your inner God, for a lack of a word, better word. You can also speak to all the ancient prophets from antiquity. They teach you things through images, through symbols. And so Kabbalah is the language of that experience. It's how we interpret what dreams mean, what visions mean, what they are. And then, as we see from this image, the tree of life, it's a symbol in the Bible. It's not a literal tree from the Middle East or from a literal history. It's a symbol of us. We are the seed that when perfected becomes this fully divine Christmas tree. Imagine all the lights on the holidays celebrated on the 25th of December. It is the illuminated perfect soul that is manifesting the Supreme. So Kabbalah is that map. It teaches us where we are in our spiritual journey, where we need to go, what we are, and how to interpret mystical experience. And then we see here the caduceus of mercury from medicine. This symbol is often used in uh, medicinal traditions, even in um, modern medicine especially. It's a symbol of how when working with energy in the body, we raise energy up from the base of our spine through two serpentine channels that rise up to our head. And by working with the energies of our physicality, our spirituality, our life force. We take that energy, it rises up in our spine, and the wings of the spirit blossom, metaphorically, symbolically. We can access higher states of consciousness. It's called alchemy. It's an Arabic term. Allah kimia, or the chemistry of God. Chem can also refer to Egypt. It's the ancient name of Egyptian society. And then by entering in our own cosmos, our own inner universe, our mind, like we see in this image, of a man walking into a cosmic head, we understand our own psychology. Our psyche, in Greek, becomes united with logos, the Greek term for the divine. Psychology, psyche, logia, or we get terms like logic, thought from that, but also logos has to do with the word the manifested divine. So Kabbalah, as I was indicating, is a map. According to Dion Fortune in the mystical Kabbalah, 
She states, It, the tree of life, is a glyph, that is to say a composite symbol, which is intended to represent the cosmos in its entirety, and the soul of man is related thereto. And the more we study it, the more we see that it is an amazingly adequate representation. We use it as the engineer or the mathematician uses his sliding rule to scan and calculate the intricacies of existence, visible and invisible, in external nature or the hidden depth of the soul. It's a map of the universe, different dimensions. And as I was indicating by the example of a meditative experience, you can enter a state of consciousness where you enter, not physically, but spiritually into different states of consciousness. This map goes from the bottom to the top, from more dense levels of experience to more subtle, rarefied, and spiritual. These are not only states of being, but also places in nature, which are mapped here. And you can, if you have an experience of a spiritual type, whether in dreams or in meditation, you can use this image, this glyph with its symbols, to understand the experience itself. Where did it come from? What happened? What was the purpose? What was it teaching us? So we use Hebrew terms and Hebrew language to designate these spheres, these states of being. We have Malkut in Hebrew, which means kingdom. It's our physical body. Above that, we have Yesod in Hebrew, which means foundation. It is energy. It is life force. It is the power of creativity. This life force, when it is harnessed intentionally, when it is consciously controlled and capitalized upon, allows us to access even higher states of consciousness. But above that we have Hod, which means splendor in Hebrew. It is our emotions, our emotional states. And to the right of that we have Netzach in Hebrew, which means the mind or victory, or mental experience. I'm pretty sure if um, we've examined our states in life daily, we can identify these four lower spheres fairly easily. We know we have our physical body because we use it all the time. We may know we have a certain level of vital energy in life to help get through the day. Maybe we have more or less in the morning or the afternoons. It fluctuates. In Chinese and Eastern medicine, they call it qi, vital force. And we also have our emotions, which we sense and experience all the time. Likewise, thought. But these fears are not the totality of everything we are. There's more. And it becomes more subtle as you introspect and examine further our motives. We have tifereth, which means beauty in Hebrew. It is our will. We find will in the ability to do projects, to plan, to get inspired, to do. Obviously, it took some amount of will to attend this lecture, to be able to get here. You may not be able to pinpoint it physically, but you sense it. But it's much more refined than thought. It actually drives thought, likewise with emotions or even just energy and sensations of the body. It's much more rarefied. Now, 
when I'm identifying these principles, we're not talking about physical senses, obviously. We're talking about psychological ones. And in truth, the sense of thought, emotions, and even our energies, these are not physical senses. These are perceptions of different dimensions. Because really, in our physical body, we are multidimensional. We may have our physical experience, but we have thought, feeling, will, emotions. You can't pinpoint them, but you sense them. They're not merely just physical. Their physical body is a vehicle of these higher principles. But above that, even beyond will, is something much more refined. Is the consciousness, geburah, in Hebrew meaning justice. It's the balance of the psyche. Consciousness is better called intuition. It is the ability to know without having to think. You don't have to deliberate. It's insight. You know something, and then maybe later you verify with your other senses. It's a very profound thing. For example, you might be dealing with a project, working on a plan and trying to resolve a problem. And then when you stop thinking about it, suddenly you get it. The inspiration comes. You stop thinking. You put your mind aside. You put your emotions aside. And then that knowledge comes to you. To divine inspiration. That's the consciousness. But obviously that state is very incipient in us. It's not developed. It's in its initial stages. But with developing ourselves in this tree of life in us, by working with and knowing these states of being, we can turn the seed of consciousness into a fully developed master. And to the right of that, we have spirit, chesed, which means mercy. This is our inner being. This is the divine, our inner particular God, which is a force, an abstraction, a state of perfection. So when someone says, really a, a real spiritual person who is someone who has fully developed that, a real spiritual person. So the spirit is God in the objective sense, at least as, what, as we're defining it. But above that, we have obviously more rarefied levels, which is the trinity of every religious tradition. Keter in Hebrew, meaning crown. Chokmah, meaning wisdom. And Binah, meaning intelligence. Or in Christianity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which are not people. Energy. Force. Principles. That we can learn to receive Kabel, Kabbalah, in meditation. These are divine energies. Very difficult to understand intellectually, but from experience we can know. And in dreams, especially. When the abstract takes on concrete forms to teach us something about our daily life, what we need to do. So it's a map. It teaches us who we are, where we're at, how to meditate, how to experience how to understand our experiences. It is the sliding rule of a cosmic engineer, somebody who maps the intricacies of existence and learns to interpret wisely so that by receiving the messages of our inner divinity, we can navigate our problems in life with greater ease. Let's talk about alchemy. Here we see an image of Jesus talking to Nicodemus about his famous verses of I believe from the book of John, to be born again. 
We also find relevant correlations in the Gospel of Thomas. So alchemy, the chemistry of the divine, is a teaching of marriage, of a relationship. And when he talks about being born again, it's not a matter of belief, saying, I believe in Jesus, therefore I'm saved. It's a sexual problem. Birth is a result of men and women uniting to create a child. That's the basic level of birth. But that energy in which can give birth to a physical child can also be harnessed by a couple to realize the divine, but through specific procedures. As Jesus was teaching to a rabbi, an old gentleman of uh, the traditions of Kabbalah, who was very learned and experienced, but didn't know the key. You must be born again of water and spirit. Not literal water, although that's a symbol of inner purification. As we were talking about in our previous lecture on how to be a Gnostic priest, water, ritual, cleansing, cleansing baptism, purification, it's in all religions. It's a symbol for this. How to take a common act and make it divine. An act that is typically associated with pleasure and carnal desire into something spiritual. Not devoid of pleasure, but with wisdom and with the bliss of the soul. The bliss of Eden, according to the Hebrew term. Eden means bliss. State of paradise. A state of being that we once knew, but have forgotten. So there's some interesting verses here from the Gospel of Thomas, which are very deep, which talk about this demarcation between the Gnostics' view of sexuality and common humanity. The body in itself is a marvelous machine. The human vehicle has energy and is a vehicle of potential. And so to develop our full powers of a, as a human being, we have to utilize the energies that gave us life. That's a sexual energy. It's a creative energy. But it is given names in diverse traditions in different ways. In the original Christian sense, it's the Holy Spirit, the power of life. Kundalini amongst the yogis, Shekinah amongst the Hebrews, the Kabbalists, Tara among the Buddhists. The power of the divine feminine to create life and to sustain it. So the body has all this energy that we can use spiritually. And the flesh can become not something for a few moments of pleasure, but can be harnessed to realize the divine. I'll explain some verses. Yeshua said, if the flesh came into being because of spirit, it is a marvel. But if the spirit came into being because of body, it is a marvel of marvels. Yet I marvel at how this great wealth has come to dwell in this poverty. This is a very deep line. 
Very profound. If flesh came into being because of spirit, meaning there's a teaching when the Christian church or the early Christians called Immaculate Conception. Obviously, there's birth without... I mean, the traditional association is that the Virgin Mary gave birth without sex. And that obviously this is the marvel. This is part of the, the doctrine for many Christians today. But in Gnosticism, we don't deny that sexuality is the ability to create life and that it is necessary. However, it is possible to give birth to children, not without sex, but without orgasm, without losing the creative potential. Real Immaculate Conception can happen with one sperm and one egg. It doesn't require the expulsion of millions of spermatozoa. And if you're interested in knowing this mystery, you can study a book called The Yellow Book by Samuel and Vior. He talks about if married couples want to, who practice this teaching want to have a child, but without, without lust, to have a child that's going to be much more pure and spiritually elevated, without defilement, then they can practice that. So if the flesh can come into being because of spirit, it is a marvel. It is a way of physical creation that's very divine. And then we say that this is the method of Jesus' birth because alchemy, as the science of working with the creative energy, is about conserving that force and creating the spirit. Not creating a physical child necessarily, but taking that power and using it for the divine. But obviously, the Holy Spirit, the intelligence of the divine, can take one sperm impregnate the egg, and it is a chaste, clean birth. Very powerful. But also, if the spirit came into being because of body, it is a marvel of marvels. Meaning, married couples can, through the perfect matrimony, conserve the waters of life without expelling it through orgasm can take that same energy which could produce pleasure and a child, raise it up the spine to the mind and illuminate the wings of the spirit. That energy which can create life is the power of God. Where else do we find in the human being the power to create life through love? And God is the creator, according to many, especially the Abrahamic traditions, whether Jewish, Christian, or Muslim. The power of life is in sex. That is the power of divinity. We can take that power and create and raise the fire of Pentecost, Kundalini of the spine, or Shekinah, the Holy Ghost, many names. So I marvel at how this great wealth has come to dwell in this poverty because our body, especially in this day and age, despite our medical advancements and abilities in modern science tend to be very sick. We have bodies that are afflicted with illnesses. It is poverty. But the wealth of the creative energy can be used, can be conserved. And like saving money in a bank, that energy, instead of being wasted, can be used 
and it could become an internal fountain of life, the waters of baptism. But obviously this way of approaching sex can be controversial and very alarming for people because first off, many people have not heard it, are not familiar with it, have not practiced it. But it is a way to regenerate the body, the psyche, health, our spiritual life. That energy can empower our virtues, make us more patient, compassionate, enduring. It is the chemistry of God because it is the energy that can give us that conduit to return, to be unified. So, Yeshua said, Whoever has come to know the world has discovered the body, and whoever has discovered the body, of that one the world is not worthy. So, when we are teenagers and we grow up, we approach the world, and we learn about all the common ways that sex is, is approached and used. But whoever has discovered the body and learned the spiritual methods of alchemy, of that one the world is not worthy. That is because humanity rejects what it doesn't understand. And this is why this type of knowledge and practice has been kept, has been kept secret for a long time because of its revolutionary and controversial nature. But obviously now in these times, we're giving it out to the public for whoever wants it. We included this image of Padmasambhava with Yeshit Soigal, his consort, to talk about the Buddhist teaching of Tantra. So alchemy, the perfect matrimony, sacred sexuality, is the same teaching, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, where you find a lot of iconography teaching about the union of man and woman to harness the creative power and to raise it up the spine to the mind. And by conserving that force and utilizing it spiritually, become perfect. Padmasambhava in Tibetan Buddhism is often referred to as the second Buddha. His rank among the masters of that tradition is very high. So we included, again, these verses from the Gospel of Thomas that corroborate the Eastern teaching of the Tibetan Buddhists. And that when approaching this topic, it is important to analyze our assumptions, to look at our own biases, perhaps, or limitations, maybe prejudices or attachments or fears regarding sexuality. This is why Jesus said the following, or it was stated in the Gospel of Thomas. Yeshua saw some babies nursing. He said to his students, These nursing babies are like those who enter the kingdom. They said to him, Then shall we enter the kingdom as babies? We've gone back and forth about how we seek to become innocent, pure of mind, selfless, to become like a child, not a state of naivety, but a state of a maturity, but with pure, of, pure state of mind, clarity of mind, wisdom. This verse that I'm going to read next is, has been very difficult for a lot of people, primarily because it's so abstract, but I'm going to explain it in relation to alchemical principles. 
to enter the kingdom of the divine, or to use the Hebrew term Malkut, which we see here in our graphic of the Tree of Life, to enter the kingdom, which is the entryway into the higher worlds of Kabbalah, we have to fulfill the precepts of alchemy. Yeshua said to them, when you make the two into one, and when you make the inner like the outer, and the outer like the inner, and the upper like the lower, and when you make the male and female into a single one, so that the male will not be male, nor the female be female, when you make eyes in place of an eye, a hand in place of a hand, a foot in place of a foot, an image in place of an image, then you will enter the kingdom. What does it mean to make the two into one? It's precisely sexuality. When man and woman unite, they become one being. Male, female, join together to create the third force of synthesis. The masculine force is affirmative, projective. The feminine principle is receptive. Negative as in um, it receives. And then their union is the synthesis. It is religion. Because religion in Latin means reunion. Unification to rebind with the divine. Also, the inner must become like the outer and the outer like the inner. It's a psychological teaching. We should not be caught up with appearances, especially in relation with sexual experience, with the pleasures of union. Our outer conduct when uniting with our spouse, our partner, should be one of compassion, of love, conscious love. The inner must be like the outer and the outer like the inner. Our experiences must be understood from this vantage point of the soul. The soul must be in control and awake, not passion, not lust, not desire. It's not to say that this is not a blissful, joyful state, but it's not driven by animality, the pursuit of sensations. Instead, the inner and the outer and the outer and the inner reflect the unity of comprehension. When the soul is returning to its primordial blissful state, when it is no longer attached to the appearances or sensations of sex, but understands them and experiences them without attachment. Also, when you make the male and female into a single one, the male will not be male nor the female be female. We have a Hebrew term for this, Elohim. El in Hebrew means God. Eloah means goddess. Yod Mem, masculine plural ending, means gods and goddesses. When a man and a woman are united, they have the potential to become like a god. God creates through sex, the sexual force. And when in union, husband and wife form one being. An angel. Because now, the forces of creation are activated. The spark and fire of creativity is alive. 
but it has to be controlled, it has to be harnessed. Because in this way, when you make eyes in place of an eye, a hand in place of a hand, a foot in place of a foot, you're no longer approaching the sexual act as we've all been educated to, whether from our childhood or from our friends or from the propaganda of our modern era. But instead, to be like a child, innocent, not driven by, again, as I said, passion. We have to learn to see our partner for who they are with love, not with what we want them to be. And in this way, we change our psychological image. We place an image in place of an image because psychologically, we have many images, many senses of identity. Maybe uh, as a, examples, pride, anger, pain, joy, lust, whatever it may be. These are images or ways of how we see ourselves. Identity, which will unpack with our study of psychology. In this way, when we transform our mind in our approach to our partner, then we will enter the kingdom. That is the foundation. That is the beginnings of initiation of a higher way of life. So as we were talking about, this is the secret of alchemy or tantra. Tantra in um, Buddhism refers to continuum. It is the flow, the circuitry of God in which the energies of our life force or sexual energy are circulating up those two serpents of the caduceus of mercury in our spine. And it is a continuum because it is never broken. The energy of sex is never let out, which is corroborated by the Dalai Lama. He says in Advice for Keeping Vows and Kala Chakra Practice, he states, in Kala Chakra, for achieving a devoid form, you need supreme unchanging bliss. Kala Chakra speaks a great deal about the necessity for maintaining non-weakened seminal energy drops and therefore not losing semen. Because the semen is the waters of life. All religions speak symbolically about water. To be born again of water and spirit means to take the energy from the creative potential, the sexual matter itself, and transform it into spirit through breath, through prayer, through divine words. Here we see an image of Jesus transforming water into wine, which was his first miracle. He did it at a, at a marriage, at a wedding. That water is the waters of sex. It's the semen. Symbolically placed into six stone jars. And you see that also a stone symbolically refers to either the testicles or the ovaries, even in common slang. So those waters had to be transformed into wine, fermented. Not as, it's not a tale of helping a, people to drink and be merry at a physical wedding or a ceremony. It's a symbol of alchemy. Transforming the matter of semen into the energy and wine of God, the spiritual intoxication of the soul. The way that we do it is through a common practice, which is a symbol. So Jews and Muslims practice circumcision, which according to Paul of Tarsus in the Christian gospel has a spiritual symbolic application, not a mere literal one. So the practice of circumcision is the uh, removal of foreskin 
from the phallus. And it was a symbol of taking the animality towards sex and eliminating it. Instead, it refers to approaching sex as a sacred act, not with desire. So in the Gospel of Thomas, it states, his students said to him, is circumcision useful or not? He said to them, if it were useful, fathers would produce their children already circumcised from their mothers. But the true circumcision in the spirit is altogether valuable. So, I mean, obviously the physical tradition was had a practical purpose. So for men who are perhaps overstimulated when they're connected with their partner or their wife, would not want to have so much stimulation that they lose control of the energy and therefore it's lost. Instead, it helped men to be more in control of themselves. But obviously it's not necessary to perform sexual alchemy. But spiritually speaking, controlling your mind and transforming your mind in the moment is what produces the real fruits of this practice. In the Gospel of Thomas, it also states, Yeshua said, How miserable is the body that depends on a body, and how miserable is the soul that depends on these two. So this is again going back to the perceptions of sex in our common era, but also as it's been present through all humanity. How miserable is the body that depends on a body? Meaning, do you really approach sex for just pleasure? For desire? Instead, the soul can transform the act like Christ did at the wedding of Cana. And the soul that is attached to merely just sensations of pleasure is a state of poverty, according to the Gnostics. And therefore, when approaching the perfect matrimony, in order to develop our full potential, it's important to become integrated as a soul. Obviously, marriage and Marital union is a huge responsibility, profound sacrament, a deep ritual. So the door to enter the perfect matrimony or the work of alchemy is done through learning to understand oneself, especially our drives, our motives, our intentions. One needs to be unified in purpose, unified in will, and to have the highest spiritual aspirations, especially, so that love can grow, can blossom, not desire. Jesus said, there are many standing at the door, but those who are alone will enter the bridal suite. There are many people from um, the past, especially, and even today, who have fought and sought and struggled to be able to find the knowledge that will liberate the soul from suffering. And many people have spent years, decades, searching for that wisdom. You know about Gurdjieff, especially, who sought in the Middle East for many years until he found a, a mystery school that would teach him this. Or many other seekers of knowledge who are looking for the key that is at the heart of all religions but was, was veiled until someone could teach them 
the mystery. There were many standing at the door. But now in our current era with the internet and because the initiatic mystery schools have opened their doors to humanity to receive the knowledge publicly, now it's available. But the key to enter that door is one must be alone, not physically, psychologically. This refers to becoming hermetically sealed. It's about becoming meditative. If we're seeking a relationship, but we're very desperate for dependency, attachment, and comfort, these attitudes will block us from really entering and appreciating the full beauty of a marriage. Standing alone means being integrated, not to be entering relationships driven by fear or loneliness or desire, but to be standing on one's own two feet because a marriage takes work. Obviously, both partners need to be working on themselves. And in that way, when two souls are seeking to approach the relationship with love, with consciousness, with intentionality, then they can learn the mysteries of alchemy in a higher way. We also have psychology. Here we have an image of Jesus who is illuminated in his mind. Again, this is psyche logos, the relationship of the soul with the divine. So not only is alchemy eventually necessary for later stages in the path to develop our full potential, but more importantly, we need to understand ourselves. We need to understand our own relationship to ourselves. And in fact, relating back to the last slide, to have better a better relationship will depend on our own relationship to our own inner divinity. Meaning, if our psyche is understanding how to act with divinity in mind at all times, we learn to be better people. And when we're better people, we can be a better partner, a better spouse, a better husband, a better wife. And so with psychology, we're learning to understand our consciousness, our way of being, our state of mind. And the Gnostics, as well as the early Christians and many traditions, refer to consciousness as light. It is seeing. It is knowing. It is interpreting. It is comprehending. His student said, show us the place where you are. We must seek it. He said to them, whoever has ears should hear. There is, a light, there is light within a person of light, and it shines on the whole world. If it does not shine, it is dark. We know from the examples of the prophets that they had a lot of light. They gave it to others, compassion, selflessness, and love. And therefore, they could not be hidden. They had to make themselves known. That light is a superior way of being, or we could say a level of being. Above the conditions of our common, ordinary psyche. And in our studies of psychology, we examine aspects of who we really are. 
we often talk about the essence, which is our consciousness. That's the term we use for the psyche, the soul that is not yet trapped or conditioned by defects. And defects we refer to as ego, self, I, me, who I am, identity, pride, anger, fear, vanity, lust, errors. Ego, which is really a composite of many different senses of self or eyes, errors, mistakes. And when you, and also we have personality too, which is our interface with interacting with the world, our name, our language, our customs, our face, our race, our way of being in the world. But we have to learn to understand how they relate to each other and how we relate to them. Our consciousness needs to be liberated, the light from the darkness. And in this way, as we become more compassionate people, we can learn to help others. To be a pillar of our communities, as I said. Yeshua said, you see the speck in your brother's eye, but not the beam in your own eye. When you take the beam out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, this is from an injunction from the Gospels, but stated again in the Gospel of Thomas. And in the work of psychology, we don't want to look so much for the errors of others. We want to look at our own mistakes. Be compassionate with others, but be severe with our own mistakes and to work on them. In that way, we learn to understand other people, where they're at, and how we can help them. Here we have an image of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden being tempted by the serpent. So this is an alchemical symbol too. Referring to how in the book of Genesis, ancient humanity was once in a state of perfection. And obviously their nakedness refers to the state of sexuality at that time, which was very pure, until obviously entering into temptation. We also included this image because, in a psychological sense, we must learn to be naked in our approach to who we are, to not look at the appearances of who we think we are or our assumptions, but what is actually there, to observe our state moment by moment, to put away assumption, to put away bias, to remove prejudice, to look psychologically at ourselves without attachment or shame without fear or without pride. Just look. Be mindful. Observe. So many people have asked Jesus of Nazareth about when he will approach them in the coming era because people have been very much attached to physical leaders or teachers or prophets or masters. But here you'll see the Master Yeshua was emphasizing that physical people or teachers, while they have their role, does not supersede the necessity of psychological work on ourselves. His students said, When will you appear to us and when shall we see you? Yeshua said, When you strip naked without being ashamed and take your clothes and put them under your feet like small children and trample them, then you will see the child of a living one and you will not be afraid. That state is psychological. Self-observation, we refer to it in our tradition. We look at ourselves psychologically 
we put away appearances. And like children, we trample on our own fears, our own worries. In that way, we learn to see the child of the living one. Again, a symbol of the perfected soul. And that is how you remove fear. Not by running away from it or letting it devour you, but look at it. So that you have that separation like a director watching an actor in a film. You're gathering data about your own self so that you can be free of our or conditions of mind. And also, and as we approach life, we learn to become passers-by. This is a famous verse from the Gospels as well. Yeshua said, be passers-by. This has to do with the meditative state of equanimity and dispassion. Equanimity is a state of consciousness in which we are not attached or repulsed by anything in terms of our experience. More importantly, in relation to ourselves. Dispassion has to do with non-attachment. It doesn't mean that we don't have feeling or thought or that we don't enjoy life or that we are like apathetic zombies that have no appreciation of a cup of coffee or a moment of happiness. Dispassion means we are not attached with desire. The consciousness instead, which is different, is awake, alert, perceptive, seeing life, Experiencing life in its full totality, its alert novelty, its spontaneity, its joy. But it's not egotistical. It's not ego. It's not a defect. It's not a condition of thought, feeling, or will, or desire. It's a state of being that you have to experience and taste in yourself, especially if you learn meditation. You learn to separate and observe yourself, understand your own weaknesses or faults or errors. And then as you go through life, when different situations emerge, when there's ordeals and challenges, you don't react. doesn't mean you don't respond. It means you respond with intelligence. You solve problems in the moment. You don't have to think. You be. We pass by, meaning you go from situation to situation with clarity, intuition, insight, patience. And also we reduce our suffering a lot. Even in the situation is very difficult. Could be our job, could be our marriage, could be different situations that create pain for us. Instead, we learn to approach that situation with peace. And then when the fires or the temperature of situations rise and we feel like we're boiling inside, we look at that state, we separate from it. And with wisdom, we understand what we must do. Meditation helps us greatly with this effort, especially day by day as we're learning to understand our behaviors and what we do that create problems. So that when we approach different ordeals and circumstances, we learn to pass by. Let it pass by. Don't get stuck. Don't feed into the pain. Look at it, observe it, understand it. In this way, we gain great knowledge of ourselves. It's not intellectual knowledge. In fact, it's the real definition of gnosis, which is the experience of the consciousness. Having a lot of intellectual knowledge is not enough. Reading books or scriptures, listening to lectures could be good, but it cannot replace our own experience of the truth.
This is why Yeshua said, one who knows all but lacks within is utterly lacking. So, there's a saying in the Gospels, I believe, we have to become poor in spirit. In a sense, we have to become poor, meaning recognizing that we want to become something more. We want our potential to be realized. And so we study and approach different traditions to learn. And it's necessary in its, le- in its level and place. But the real knowledge comes from our experience, from knowing the truth, from meditation especially. So in this way, we learn to guard ourselves. I was talking a lot about self-observation, which is an essential technique that we use in our tradition. Meaning, as the essence, as the soul, as the consciousness, you're looking at your psychological states from moment to moment. You're learning to be watchful, vigilant. Your soul is learning to be like a watchman in a time of war. Obviously, during wartime, a soldier has to be awake, alert, and attentive. Otherwise, the enemy can creep in. Likewise, in our daily states, at our jobs, with our marriage, in our careers, we have to be so attentive, not strained, but awake as a soul to know at what moments our hidden defects will emerge. Maybe it's going to be pride or anger or fear. Whatever defect afflicts us most in life, we have to be prepared for it, to know what situations are going to provoke it. So that in the moment, you're aware, suddenly... Someone criticizes you, and then you feel anger. You start to see your own anger emerge, what it looks like, what it tastes like, the bitter aftermath in our psychological mouth. I use this example because I have this a lot with my job. I work with very difficult clients, constantly trying to provoke, antagonize, create problems. So they've really done me a blessing by training me to be within a state of vigilance because any moment my defects could emerge. And so... One after the other, after the other, after the other. New problems, new situations. And it could be like a battlefield. But if you're very patient and just approach these people with love, suddenly the anger dissipates, ceases. In this way, we learn to understand our own defects so that our defects do not exacerbate the problem. Do not make things worse for us. Yeshua said, blessings on you if you know where the robbers will enter so you can wake up. Rouse your estate and arm yourself before they break in. There's even a saying by Shantideva in the way of the Bodhisattva within Tibetan Buddhism that you should, if, if uh, you allow a sliver of anger to enter your mind, it will take over. You have to catch it like a snake crossing your path. Suddenly you rouse yourself, get out of danger. That's the same psychological attitude we need with negative emotions, especially, so that they don't dictate our own situations. And in this way, it's kind of a, to use, again, military language, it's a form of spiritual war because we see our faults, our defects, and that these defects, like anger and pride, limit our potential and prevent us from becoming something really sacred. But first we have to acknowledge and accept that we have a psychology that is feasible to modify, that we can look at ourselves and be able to make the necessary approach and efforts to change. 
Salon Vior, the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition, states this in a talk on the mysteries of life and death. When one accepts that one has one's own psychology, then one begins to observe oneself. And when one begins to observe oneself, then one begins to become different from the rest of the world. In the street, at home, and at our job is where the defects that we hit carry with, hidden within blossom spontaneously. And if we are as alert and vigilant as a watchman in a time of war, then we can see them. A discovered defect must be prosecuted by means of in-depth analysis, reflection, and intimate meditation of the being with the objective of comprehending it. When one comprehends this or that I defect, then one is prepared to atomically disintegrate it. Very severe words, but very true. If your anger creates problems in your life, observe it, separate it from it, do not feed it what it wants, and obviously it's going to fight. But if you comprehend it deeply, you can disintegrate it with the help of your inner divine being. Eliminate it. Get it out of your life. Do not let it dictate your circumstances. And that way you stop suffering. You cease being in pain. But obviously the ego suffers when the, the sense of I suffers when you don't feed the animal, obviously. But that's why we have to be very kind to others, but severe with our own defects. But also patient with ourselves because this is not easy to learn. It takes practice. So I know today is April Fool's. It is the 1st of April. And there's some interesting symbology related to this date, tying into the nature of our divine potential. We included here an image of the biblical sower providing seed to the countryside, which is a metaphor of providing the spiritual teachings to humanity. And in that metaphor, parable given by Jesus, I believe, some of the seed goes to the wayside, some of it goes to the birds, some of it among th uh, thorns, which is a representation of how, again, going back to the beginning, not all seeds develop. They have to land on good soil. They have to be cultivated and developed and perfected. And in a sense, some might wonder and feel like, due to the state of our common humanity, why is it that this should even be done in the first place? Isn't it foolish when so many people look at spirituality and think this is a waste of time? They don't think it's practical. They don't think it's useful. Primarily because the institutions that they're familiar with are deficient. They don't have a practical component to religion to teach people how to change fundamentally, day by day, through techniques. We see this image of the tarot, which if you're not familiar, the tarot are um, symbols, usually from Egyptian mythology, obviously has been popularized in other decks, representing cosmic principles. Each card of the tarot is a law or a nature of being, a way of being. Tarot, referring to the Torah in Hebrew, or the Torah, means law. These are called arcana for plural, or arcanum, law, singular. In some decks, they refer to this as the fool. We call it transmutation. Again, which is an alchemical symbol that we've kind of dived into previously. Here we see uh, a man sitting with an ankh cross, the symbol of life, over a crocodile. 
or alligator, who at any moment could be devoured, meaning devoured by his own passions, his own foolishness, his own ignorance. But the way to overcome the crocodile or the animal of the mind is precisely through this symbol of transmutation, alchemy. So it's another term for the chemistry of God, alakimia. Transmutation is to take a metal, like in the European medieval traditions, lead into gold, the denseness of our personality into the gold of the spirit. That is the method to overcome, really, a lot of foolishness in our daily life because the energy which could empower our spirituality is being used. It's constantly giving you energy, focus, vitality, concentration, imagination, perception, awareness, mindfulness, all day. Peace of mind, serenity of mind. And also the spring with April, we find, you know, even tomorrow we're starting the Holy Week with Palm Sunday. So it's a very auspicious time. April is a symbol of rebirth, rejuvenation, of how the seed becomes and sprouts into the flowers of life. But obviously, the sower uh, provides the seed and hopes that many people will grow from it. It's also stated in the Gospel of Thomas, this teaching. Yeshua said, Look, the sower went out, took a handful of seeds, and scattered them. Some fell on the road, and the birds came and pecked them up. Others fell on rock, and they did not take root in the soil, and did not produce heads of grain. Others fell on thorns, and they choked the seeds, and worms devoured them. And others fell on good soil, and it brought forth a good crop, yielding 60 per measure and 120 per measure. Before we get into the numerology here, the symbolism of this Kabbalah, this teaching, sometimes when you, we speak of spiritual teachings or traditions or scriptures or movements, sometimes the birds pick up the seed. The bird is a symbol of the mind because it's an aerial figure. Birds fly in the air. Our, th our thoughts are aerial in nature. Some people receive knowledge of any tradition and their mind worries, debates, speculates, fears, interprets, analyzes, pecks apart, doesn't see the quality of its of the heart that it's really teaching. This is not really so much a teaching of, again, the intellect, although we use the intellect to convey this knowledge. It's really a practical teaching of how to be, which is much more dynamic than just thought itself. Sometimes the seed falls on rock, doesn't take soil, meaning people who are calcified, petrified by the past, who don't want to change or are not interested in changing. Some fall on, fall on thorns, which if you look on the internet, obviously with our culture wars and social media, the thorns that are constricting humanity, people biting and pricking at each other, metaphorically speaking, and even literally, I mean, um, figuratively. Thorny topics, controversial topics, people debate and argue, but they don't grow. But some so, uh, seed falls on good soil, meaning people who are receptive and who want to change, who want to remove their presumptions and actually apply what religion really teaches. And in that way, they bring forth good crop. 
60 plus 120. Again, in Kabbalah, we take the numbers of different, uh, well, we take numbers in themselves, represent principles. The numbers in themselves also relate to the Torah and also relate to the Hebrew language. Hebrew in itself is a numerical language, Kabbalistic language, because each letter represents a number. Also, numbers add up. You take the numbers and you add them in their sum to arrive at synth a synthesis. So 120 plus 60 equals 180. And 1 plus 8 plus 0 equals 9. I haven't included the ninth card of the Tarot here, but it's called the Hermit. It relates to becoming hermetically sealed. So no matter how crazy the world is getting, we seal ourselves from negativity. We become alone, psychologically. To stand as a single one. And in that way, we grow. We don't waste energy in futile things. Again, the ninth sphere on the tree of life is Yasod, which is the foundation of life. It is the seed, and literally the sexual seed. So that when that we use that energy with fidelity, we grow. Because the power of life to create. So for more resources on how to grow spiritually, we have the following books. The Mystery of the Golden Flower, which talks about alchemy. Teron Kavala, which teaches about precisely its title. And the Revolution of the Dialectic, which is psychology. These books will teach you how to develop your full potential. But obviously there are many other texts we have available too. But some of these three are, are particularly powerful. At this time, I invite you to ask questions. So you mentioned a quote about preserving semen, but how does that apply to women? So semen, uh, in the esoteric sense, refers to the creative waters, the energy. The term semen in Hebrew is shemen, which means oil. So both men and women, masculine and feminine sex, have their own energy, water, or oil that we respectively use to transmute. So I know some people get caught up when they read, say, The Perfect Matrimony. It talks about restraining the semen, but he's not talking just about men, women too. Because shemen, the oil of God, whether for men or women, has to be conserved and utilized, has to be preserved. We have a lecture called The Mysteries of Anointment where we talk about this symbol precisely. It's on our course called The Gnostic Mysteries of the Bible. Very deep uh, exploration into just the term shaman, how it relates to um, the oil of anointment, how the symbol of conserving that power, we become anointed like uh, Christ. Christ, even in Greek, means Christos or anointed one. When you work with that energy, whether it's male or female, that energy will crown you, so to speak. general question can sure. you speak about the postures on the this is Egyptian looking sure yeah we call these the runes so it's a form of yoga yoga is the postures of the body which combined with vocalization and prayer mantras or sacred sounds we accumulate energy so this is actually ties very well into our lecture because 
This is one of the best ways to develop our energetic potential. So in our school, we work with the runes. These are postures that imitate the Nordic alphabet. I've included images of Egyptian figures because um, like the Tarot, the Nordic letters themselves being very ancient have roots within Egypt even before that time, but also can apply to many of the Egyptian symbols that we find in the pyramids, such as the figures of, uh, I believe there's even one of Osiris or a female figure, I believe, who is raising her hands up to receive the light of the sun. And this is an Egyptian mural from thousands of years ago, which is exactly the same symbol as the root Fa, in which by standing, facing the east when the sun rises, our left palm is above our right, hands extended. We imagine and visualize the energy of the sun entering the palms through our body. And with prayer and vocalizations, we receive energy. So this is energy from nature or the energy of Christ. Because Christ as the sun, S-U-N, not only just S-O-N, is the light of divinity. And that energy is what's going to catalyze your development. I mean, that energy is very powerful when you're working with assimilating that force in nature, but also raising the energies from sex up to your brain, you create a, a form of alchemy. You're amalgamating the forces of the, nat of the natural world with your own creative potential. And in that way, you raise the fires of love. Literally, the prayer is, marvelous forces of love, revive my sacred fires so that my consciousness will awaken. And they do the mantras, fa, Fe, fi, fo, fu. And literally, when you prolong the vowels, you uh, intonate them, you sing them, you swim in the vibration of the energy. And literally, the sacred sound will activate certain glands in the body, but also they work with the chakras too. Um, chakras being, in Sanskrit, wheel. There are wheels or vortices of energy in the body within our vital energy itself, relating to yasad. So all these postures you can perform really any time of the day, but the morning is very effective for that. It's going to charge you for your, your job, your career, the situations in life. And that energy empowers your consciousness. So when you do that, you become like a battery. It's like you're watering your garden, so to speak. And the seed of your consciousness will get very strong, will develop. Because with that force, with the runic letters, you're connecting with your inner being. You're assimilating the forces of nature. And if you can go out into the countryside, away from Chicago, you know, I know um, we like to take trips outside of the city to go out to nature. And before we've even done runes out on the countryside, very powerful. So that's one method for awakening our full potential. Aziz, um, are this in the book, in, in the lectures, or which book? Which book? There is Magic of the Runes by Sam Alan Vior. Yeah, okay. And then there's also a course on Glorian called Runes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, one of the instructors goes into a lot of detail explaining the symbology of, you know, all the different runic postures, you know, such as Is, Equas, Otala, Ur, Ar, Man, Sig. Even these first seven runes, we have a video on Glorian Publishing's website. Um, you can access it on their YouTube channel as well.
literally they go they have someone going through the seven postures of the runes vocalizing and showing how to work with that force that's a very powerful introduction to to learn how to perform these i believe even too uh we might have a maybe rent out another space to uh perform these runes too i know with a our accommodations here don't allow for you know the sound and the noise, but um, this is definitely something we can practice as a group and we can learn to apply. Yeah, very deep. Outside when the weather is warmer, you can do it. Right. Sure. Um, you talked about uh, comprehension before, um, dis like disintegrating the self. Can you go deeper into like the comprehension uh, process? Sure. Kind of going back to my analogy of the aha moment. You, you stop thinking about a problem, stop planning, stewing in it, becoming enmeshed in it. Analysis of an ego is like that. Analysis of our understanding of a defect where you're meditating, your mind is clear, you're concentrating and imagining a scene in your day in which maybe anger emerged, followed by pride, then maybe fear. You look at how those three defects were related in that circumstance, but also um, how you acted. And if you're concentrating very deeply and you're not thinking of it, and you're asking your inner divinity, show me understanding, give me wisdom about what this defect is. How does it work? How does it feed? What circumstances does it arise in my life? What problems is it causing for me? Where does it come from? Why is it doing what it's doing? You can ask these questions in, in a state of prayer, but then you got to put your mind aside. And as you're looking and concentrating and holding and sustaining the image of that moment in the day with the defect that you saw, suddenly, out of the blue, the answer comes. Insight. There's an Arabic term called firasa, which means uh, insight. And even applies to, um, I believe, a lion. It's a name for a word for a lion. It's like you're hunting. You're hunting for your, you're hunting your own ego. But the way that you watch a lion hunt, they're in the bushes, so to speak. They're patient. They watch. They're covert. They don't jump until it's the, precisely the moment when they know they got it. Same thing with understanding. That insight will hit you, will come into you when you... Don't even expect it. You can't expect anything. Comprehension is when you know something and understand it without planning without planning for it, without anticipating. It arrives. But obviously to get to that point, we have to develop enough concentration and serenity in our day. This is why we study, as we see in this image in the corner here, the nine stages of meditative concentration. That's a map in Tibetan Buddhist murals across pretty much every Tibetan monastery about how the consciousness or the monk below has to tame the wild elephant of the mind. So stage by stage, the elephant becomes much more purified and white, meaning the mind is less dull. And with the fire and intensity of effort to concentrate and focus, the mind begins to settle little by little until finally at the very top of concentrative states of serenity, the monk has the mind of the elephant or the elephant of the mind in a state of equipose. So at that state, suddenly you see the monk flying off into space. It could be an astral projection, 
um, state of dream yoga too. But more importantly for us, it refers to the freedom of the consciousness that is no longer stuck below. And as you go up that winding path, you learn to concentrate with greater efficacy and sustainability. You have to be able to focus on your meditative uh, object without being distracted. So it's important to develop enough serenity so that as you sit to meditate, you can focus on one thing without forgetting. And in that way, when the mind is perfectly calm, suddenly, like at the top of the tree, I'm sorry, the top of the image, like the rainbow bridge emerges. Literally, that's the, the insights from meditation that you receive. But that happens when you establish the groundwork for focusing on one thing. Don't forget what you're doing and be able to visualize an image without losing your, um, your focus. So both have to be developed. If we want to understand the process of comprehension, we should study the revolution of the dialectic because that book goes very in detail about how states of comprehension can spontaneously emerge. What conditions can we put in place in order to have that insight or that new knowledge about something, a defect or a situation that we're studying to emerge? Yeah, thank you. It's a very deep book. Very, um, a lot of principles to know. And um, also, too, if you're learning this for the first time, especially, you can begin to learn self-observation in a book called Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology. That'll teach you the basics, especially in approaching Revolution of the Dialectic, because that book is very um, synthetic. You mentioned Gurdjieff uh, today. So, um... And then you, you in one of the lectures, um, this your guys talking of Gnostics are talking about modern, uh, transformation of the impressions. Impressions. Um, Gurdjieff. I don't know where Gurdjieff speaks about transformation of impressions. I read the Berlin Listening to those about tales and uh, this inner search of miracles. Can you elaborate, please? Yeah. Um, he touches on certain points on that in the scale. So you have the seven notes. I know Spensky talks a lot about Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Si. And then literally... So when you talk about psychological studies, he refers to the seven notes of the musical scale in relation to psychological states. Uh, you have, for example, do, re, mi, relating to instinctive behaviors, emotional behaviors, intellectual behaviors, usually in reference to mistaken ways of being. You call those lower three notes the Tower of Babel, or in the Bible, it's the tower that literally reached on to heaven that was fulminated by divinity as a symbol of how people who are very instinctive, predominantly, or emotional, or intellectual, tend to be very confused. And there's a fourth note that kind of transcends that point, the note fa, which is the, the conscious shock. Yeah, and that relates to even the rune fa, like we're talking about with the runes. Like the musical scale, do, re, mi, fa. Between mi, fa, there is no half tone, so it's not linear. So this right. is a conscious shock, okay. 
Yeah, so fa is the, be the beginning. So to begin transforming impressions, we need to develop that shock, meaning you're observing yourself, and then suddenly you begin to see life in a new way. That's when we really find the miraculous, meaning moment by moment with alert novelty, we're seeing ourselves and life and experience it in a new way. But to go to a higher point, we not only have to initiate the shock, but have to sustain it. And that relates to the higher notes. So fa, do re mi fa, la, sol. Yeah, si. Yeah. And then, um, but the higher notes can relate to even um, states of consciousness that are maybe related to the superior emotional center and then even the superior intellectual center. And then finally, with uh, the last shock, you experience a note relating to, uh, I believe, C. C. And um, that relates to, to Vareth. Point as a level. Yes, so literally that's the second shock that you not only initiate it, but now you're sustaining it. And because you're so diligent about transforming your mind and seeing life in a new way, you reach new comprehension. And literally, when you get that shock, and the, the second shock on the scale, that's when you've really transformed really an impression because you're now experiencing the beauty of the soul, which is Tifereth. Mm -hmm. And literally it's like, you can again, you can map out the scale on the tree of life. You have the Hod relating to the superior emotional center, Netzach relating to the superior mental center. You can say solar astral and solar mental bodies relating to alchemy too. And then if you sustain and reach that note, you reach a new shock, which in terms of Tifereth, that willpower is now you sustain the note and you are maintaining it. And then in that way, you can go to higher octaves. So all that implies, maybe not explicitly in Gurdjieff, but it implies the psychological transformations of impressions. You know, without that, it's like you don't get that. When you transform an impression, you understand something in a new way. You just know, you're like, aha, it's the insight. You don't have to think. And it kind of revitalizes you. I'm not so much um, familiar with what text Gurdjieff might talk about transformation impressions, but I know that Salman Vioran really derived a lot of his teaching from what Gurdjieff wrote. Yeah, I'm surprised because uh, there is also about Hannes Wilson. If we don't do that, uh, then so this is our sacrifice, right? This Alexis sacrifice towards the growth or evolution. And then if we don't do that, then Hamas Musin, Hamas Musin, nature will take over. Yeah, and then Salman Vera talks a lot about, with Hamas especially, uh, as people who created solar bodies, but who do not eliminate the ego. Hamas Yeah, you can say Hamas or Hanas Musin, especially. And I think even you can take the Sanskrit terms, uh, Hasna and Musin, which can relate to, um, I don't remember the strict etymology, but I mentioned, I mentioned it in... Um, discussion on the opera Turindo, where Hasna Musin can relate to uh, a mouse that devours a stone with pain. It's a moose, mouse, Asna, I don't remember what particle or, or what, what the strict etymology is, but it, you can translate it in that way. And it refers to those beings who were creating solar vehicles, but who were angels, but then they fell. And then they ended up devouring their own stone, the creative energy, but in the wrong way, with pain. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of similarities there. Any other thoughts? Sure. Can you go back to the 
into Doth a little bit more? Sure. I touched on it today. Um, Doth is Otzhadat Ra, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It is alchemy. Same thing. So the tree of knowledge is located precisely by the throat. Because if you take this image of the tree of life, transpose it on a human being, the top trinity is the head, the middle trinity is the heart, and the lower trinity is the sexual organs. And then Malkuth is the feet. And the tree of knowledge is when you're in your in a marriage, united with your spouse, and you're using mantras to vocalize and transmute the creative energy. And that's where real knowledge, gnosis, comes from. It's the hidden sphere that was never talked about in the Kabbalistic traditions because that knowledge is the secret of secrets, the Holy of Holies. But now it's public. But Da'at in Hebrew is composed of three letters. Dalet, Ayin, Tav. Dalet means door. Ayin means eyes. And Tav means seal. Basically, like any Sufi or Dervish, Darvish is the poor man that the letter Dat, because Dat can, uh, Dalet can mean poor person. Someone who stands at the door of initiation. So going back again to the image of the bridal suite, to enter the bridal suite, one has to stand at the door. And literally, Dat is composed of Dalet, Ayin, Tav. Dalet is the doorway to enter alchemical sexual knowledge. And Ayin relates to the eyes because we have to pay attention to how we perceive. What image in our mind constitutes our experience. So an image for an image, an eye for an eye, a hand for a hand. Going back to the Gnostic Gospel. Replace egotistical eyes with spiritual eyes. By purifying your perception is how you enter the door of alchemical knowledge. By applying it so that with Tav... That Hebrew letter of the covenant, the seal of God, is perfected. And it's also interesting, if you look at the tree of life too, you find that the center pillar of the tree of life is dominated by the Hebrew letter Tav. Keter, you find Tav in the middle. Dat, Tav at the end. Tiferet, Tav in the beginning and the end. And in Malkut especially, you find Tav at the end as well. You perfect the seal or covenant with your inner divinity by working with your spine and by prayer and mantra in the alchemical act, you gain knowledge. Very profound. And then if you want to know more about the symbolism of all the Hebrew letters, there's a course on Glorian where they go into great detail about that. But that, And also they have courses on especially the tree of knowledge and its symbolism. Any other thoughts? Okay. And thank you all for coming. We're going to conclude. I believe we'll have another lecture in about two weeks. Not the next Saturday, but the following. We'll continue with the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas and explain some symbols relating to initiation, revelation, and the New Age. So I thank you all for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, 
transcriptions, and articles available at chicagonosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.